Hello, Angela. Hello, Marion. How's it going? It's amazing. What's going on with you? Well, I am super excited, and I'm going to tell you why. We are doing something different this week for our special COVID-19 episode of Amplify Nursing. We are coordinating coverage with another local podcast put out by the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. So their podcast is At the Core of Care, and it highlights consumer experiences of patients, families, and communities, and the creative efforts of nurses. Yes, this is fantastic. Their episode, Refugee Health Up Close, is going to pair really nicely with the interview that we did with Dr. Laura Vargas and Dr. Adriana Perez from the School of Nursing, who both study Latinx immigrant health. It gives a really broad perspective on the topic. Yeah, so I would highly encourage folks, if you want to learn more about these important topics, to check out their podcast at paactioncoalition.org or subscribe to their podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marian Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today on Amplify Nursing, we talk with Dr. Laura Vargas and Dr. Adriana Perez, two scholars whose research focuses on Latinx immigrant populations in the U.S. Dr. Vargas is a vice provost postdoctoral fellow at the Penn Injury Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, and Dr. Perez is a nurse practitioner and an assistant professor also at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. We discuss the challenges our immigrant communities are facing during this pandemic, how health and healthcare disparities in the Latinx immigrant communities are being magnified, and what needs to happen moving forward to start to solve for these complex issues both during and after the pandemic. Dr. Perez and Dr. Vargas, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. Thank you so much for uh, the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you and uh, with my good friend, uh, Dr. Perez. Yes, likewise. I'm so excited to join all of you. And like Laura said, we actually do some work together. So this is a great opportunity to join her. So Dr. Perez, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the population that you study? Yes. Um, in general, my interest, my area of interest is um, healthy aging in older Latinos. Um, and that includes all of us. I mean, we are all aging. So I look at vulnerable populations like um, farm workers, those that are migrant and immigrant, um, and those that have been here for generations and are aging in place. Um, I am interested in the aging process, uh, both looking at challenges and strengths um, in the population. And Dr. Vargas, how about you? What, what population are you looking at? Um, well, my, my research has focused mostly on uh, recent Latino immigrants, and um, I, I focus on uh, how exposure to trauma, uh, violence, and other specific forms of trauma impacts mental health um, uh, symptoms, specifically depression and anxiety. 
among recent Latino immigrants. So I look at the entire um, uh, migration period, if you will. So before people leave their home country, um, while they're traveling to get to the United States and immediately after arrival uh, to the United States. So the focus is to understand uh, what those trajectories of exposure to trauma and, and mental health look like. Dr. Perez, can you tell us a little bit about some of the differences between the populations that you're studying? So farm workers, migrant, both migrant and immigrant farm workers, and then also um, older Latinos that, are, that have been here for a long time who are aging in place. In my research, and you know, and I came from Arizona, which is a border state, and I was a Southwest Borderland Scholar at Arizona State University, and the immigrant population there and the farm worker population is predominantly Mexican, um, and, and their way of life is coming back and forth across the border every day to, um, to work in the fields. In fact, I come from a family of farm workers, and I was very interested in the migration of farm of, of Latinos uh, for farming and other industries to the rest of the U.S. Uh, to my surprise, I have found that um, there indeed are many uh, Latinos from all over Latin America in the East Coast and in Pennsylvania in particular uh, because of the mushroom farm, uh, farm work. So my interest in research is to look at, uh, track the health overall of farm workers. Uh, farm workers tend to be younger, similar to the rest of the Latino population. Um, however, they're not experiencing aging like other Americans. For example, farm workers on average have a, a life expectancy of 51, 52 years old. So they don't, you know, they don't benefit from research advances that ensure all Americans live longer, healthier lives. And to me, that is a big concern. As you know, farm workers are responsible and really help to feed the nation. They're responsible for um, the food that we eat. Um, you know, so if you enjoy uh, vegetables, meat, dairy, all those things, I mean, those things are because of uh, immigrant um, workers in this country. So in my interest as a nurse, I really want to know how um, to best um, advance the health of farm workers. You know, in addition to the challenge of a language, they also um, don't have, for the most part, access to health insurance, um, health insurance coverage. And even when they do, uh, they're in a system that really is not designed for them. Uh, very few um, healthcare providers speak Spanish. And again, I think coming to Pennsylvania has really um, underscored the need for um, ensuring that our workforce mirrors this, uh, mirrors our country. And here in Pennsylvania, um, I've also learned that farm workers come from many different places in Central and South Central um, America. So in addition to um, having uh, language barriers, we're, we're finding that uh, some have different dialects in addition to Spanish. So providing health information, whether it's related to COVID or other health issues um, is also challenging, but at the same time, very much needed. Uh, the resources that 
often uh, healthcare providers have as well-intentioned as, as they think we try to be, uh, really fail to reach those that are most vulnerable. And again, those that are vulnerable, but yet are essential to the health of our country. So I'm interested in their health overall, um, tracking things like uh, nutrition, sleep, physical activity, all the pillars of health that we promote um, in general to the American public, again, don't often reach this vulnerable community. Um, it, it, thankfully, other areas of research have, um, have been addressed a little bit more, and I would say with a lot more success, like the issue of environmental factors and how they impact farm workers. But like I said, like, you know, compared to the rest of the Latino population, they also experience high rates of hypertension, diabetes, depression, um, and so, you know, so many other chronic conditions. So I'm very interested in their health and studying their health and developing interventions that are not only linguistically relevant, but those that mirror their values and their priorities. And then second is um, aging period. Um, I have found that even Latinos that have been here for generations still face many of the same challenges that newly immigrated Latinos face when it comes to discrimination, racism, um, and a, a lack of, of inclusion when it comes to health care decision-making. Um, often, um, you know, they're not involved in their plan of care, um, and they don't um, really, you know, their goals, I would say, and I'm a nurse practitioner as well, I think that while we are trained to um, address disease and look at different lab values and diagnostics, you know, often their research, their health goals are a lot different than that. And um, I, you know, working towards the development of interventions that include them in that, um, in the design of interventions that take into account, again, their, their, not just their challenges, but also their strengths. And I would say that something that cuts across immigrants, um, Latino immigrants, whether, again, new, newly immigrated or those that have been here generations, is that there is a lot of inherent strength that comes from being an immigrant. Um, some of it is, you know, being resilient because often they have no, um, they have no choice but to be resilient, and that is a strength. And secondly, a strength of, of um, having a close-knit family, uh, familismo as a concept has been found to be a protective mechanism for health, and yet, you know, I get so worked up because, because of um, the discrimination that they face. I can't imagine the amount of strength it takes to pick your entire life up and move to a place that you don't know anyone, that you don't have support, that you don't understand the language, that you don't understand the, how it all works. And in this political climate, you know it's hostile. So I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like to have to make that decision and know that it's a better decision than staying where you are. I applaud your efforts to take care of and look at this population of people. My grandmother is Puerto Rican and she never complains about anything. She never says a word about anything. 
I think that's also part of the culture. It's not like a whiny complaining culture either. Um, so no one, you know, they're, they're not advocating for themselves. And I think it's incredibly important that we as nurses advocate for vulnerable populations. Thank you for picking up on that, Angela. Um, just to, you know, kind of close the loop here. I think as a researcher, you know, as a scientist and as a nurse practitioner, what I have learned all these years is that, and it's again validated by my work here in Philadelphia when I think about, you know, my work in Arizona, and that is that, you know, while we're trained to look at problems, disease, you know, issues, we really miss the big picture when we don't study resilience, uh, social support, the inherent strengths of the community. Um, here in uh, North Philadelphia, for example, there is an amazing um, coalition of Latino leaders that care for their elders. And despite being under-resourced and understudied, it, you know, they have really pulled together during this time of COVID to ensure that um, older adults are taken care of. And, you know, as, as it is with many, Latino subcultures, we revere our elders. And it's really a strength that I think we need to leverage as scientists and as clinicians. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So why don't we talk a little bit about some of the challenges that um, COVID-19 has brought to these um, immigrant communities. Dr. Vargas, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing? Thank you, yes. Um, well. We've been, um, I've been focusing on a particular community uh, out in Montgomery County, uh, where I've partnered with a community organization called Secate, and we've, um, uh, they have, you know, a number of families that are affiliated with, with uh, it's a nonprofit that is a, um, it promotes culture, it promotes art, promotes education, so it has all sorts of workshops for both children and adults, and they're keeping those workshops going um, even in, in, in COVID, so people are online. Uh, <laughs> they're doing all this through Zoom. Um, so we've had a chance to talk to uh, the folks out in that community. And um, of course, the biggest challenge is uh, losing their employment, right? So, and losing a steady source of income. Um, that makes, uh, these families, not just job insecure, um, but in a not so long term, uh, they're food insecure, um, they are at risk uh, for, for obviously uh, health and not being able to, to, to access health care. Um, their children are out of school, many do not have um, access to reliable internet or um, access to a device, a tablet, or a laptop for their kids to continue um, uh, their work. Um, luckily, this community has come together to make sure that the kids that have to do their schoolwork online are able to do so. Um, so the immediate impacts have to do with, with all of those things. But um, that's kind of the, you know, if you look at jobs, education, and health, um, an important impact is that they are very concerned about, um, uh, you know, getting the disease and coming home to their families and uh, contagion. Um, so 
this is a this is a big big concern because many don't have, as Adriana said, access to um, health insurance or even health care. Um, they are not uh, the system is not designed for them, as Adriana said. Um, and in addition, I think that we take for granted um, the capacity that people have in this country. Maybe people who are from the United States have always um, felt entitled to uh, certain services in the United States um, and are able to advocate for themselves, as you say. Um, culturally, I, as you mentioned, um, lack of infrastructure for healthcare and other, and other resources, perhaps in their home country, um, hasn't led to a lot of this self-advocacy. Um, and particularly when you're here, uh, that's, that's also reinforced by the hostile environment that you mentioned. So that's, that's a big uh, complication. So getting sick and going to the hospital is an absolute um, a last choice for a lot of these folks. Um, because they don't want to get sick and because many of them are undocumented and they're scared. They feel that if they come into an interaction with an agency or a public agency, um, that might uh, uh, lead to deportation or some other punitive um, measure. So on that end, uh, there's, there's, there's that constant fear. Um, another, I think, important thing is that, uh, as Adriana said, um, there is a lot of resiliency um, and inherent strengths in the in the community, such as resiliency and and familismo. Uh, many of these families are now together, um, but they are also together without being able to uh, provide properly for their children. For so the pressure, I think, that a lot of parents feel uh, is really big and they do not see um, uh, how the crisis uh, will come to an end soon. They don't, they don't know what will happen. There's a really great sense of uncertainty. Um, and in addition to that, I mean, uh, they, uh, a lot of the folks that I've spoken to, there's a great also sense of um, belief and faith. Um, so there's a great sense of faith in that things will improve, things will get better. Um, and so I think that that's another strength of this community. Um, and the other thing that I have observed uh, uh, more generally among Latino communities, but particularly during this time, um, Latinos have a very strong, or Latinx communities have a very strong uh, sense of, of solidarity. Um, Maybe it comes from the, the familismo. Maybe it comes from you know this extended, larger uh, concept of a family, uh, your neighbors sometimes, or your family because you have compadres and you have. So it's a it's a the circle gets extended, and there's a you know a sense of solidarity that I feel that um, Latinx communities have very um, strongly uh, internalized as as one of their core values. Have you oh. seen, a, I'm sorry, go ahead, Laura. I, can I add something about access to testing? This is important. You, you may. Thank you. Um, yeah, so in, in a lot of Latinx communities, um, as Adriana said, uh, there's, a, there's a barrier in language, uh, and therefore there's always a delay 
in information reaching members of the Latinx community, right? So for mm -hmm. example, um, getting to a, a drive-through test center uh, is, a, is a complicated thing because number one, not many families will have a car to get there. Number two, uh, they might not receive that information until much later. Um, similarly, when uh, people rushed to supermarkets, say to buy toilet paper, uh, well, the last folks to find out that they need to rush to the, to the supermarket, if that was uh, what they needed to do, were the Latinx community. So by the time they reach the resources that they need, those resources are very scarce or exhausted completely. So there is a, a big problem with getting information to uh, folks and, and getting um, testing available to these communities. Um, most of the testing centers, uh, they're, they're making an effort in the region that, I, that I've been uh, working with this community. They're making an effort to bring testing centers to uh, mostly minority and disadvantaged communities, but the, the efforts haven't been um, a, fast enough or, or wide enough for people to get information on where to get tested. And also, uh, again, the factor of fear of coming into interaction with, uh, with any kind of agency, be it a health agency, um, people need to trust that, that agency. And so building trust is a really important part of responding to the COVID-19 challenges in the Latinx community. Thank you. No, I, because I think this is important. Um, I think Dr. Vargas outlined some very important and real issues with COVID. Um, but I think it's very important for us to discuss the inequities in terms of rates. Uh, you know, early reports are showing from the CDC and elsewhere in states like New York City and uh, Chicago, um, higher rates of COVID-19 incidents and health uh, um, challenges in Latinos and other minorities, um, but also um, underscoring the fact that most um, minority populations, immigrants included, are in these frontline jobs and unfortunately do not benefit from any of the relief, economic or health relief uh, that has been issued um, you know, through, through current um, legislation. So, um, immigrants, you know, do not have the benefit of getting any kind of economic relief. Uh, they, um, you know, might not have health care, so there's no um, resources for testing. In the case of farm workers, many live in close quarters and they live in poverty and, as Dr. Vargas said, you know, experience food insecurity. So, so many, you know, the barriers working against um, uh, immigrants uh, staying healthy and being able to just meet the minimum uh, of what is needed to have a decent uh, a living wage and fair opportunity for health. And adding to what um, uh, Dr. Adriana just said, it, it's also really important to consider uh, uh, along the lines of the CARES Act, um, that was passed and, and other legislation that has been passed um, uh, to for larger relief of the population. Um, Latinx communities are, are not, mostly not eligible if they are um, 
undocumented. Um, but there are also some other uh, uh, clauses in the CARES Act that, for example, families who have um, one person who is undocumented or in the process of getting a, a green card or is not a, um, uh, already a regularized citizen or, or a resident of the United States, um, even in those families, access to uh, relief uh, from the CARES Act is not, is not available. Um, similarly, when one thinks of the PPP uh, program, which was meant to um, uh, provide loans, um, it's, a, it's a payment protection plan, I believe, to provide mm -hmm. loans for small businesses, um, et cetera. It's not just Latinx communities being left out, it's all communities uh, of, of minorities, uh, minority origins, particularly African-American and Latinx communities. Um, many of, many, for example, in the Latinx community don't have, uh, they employ several people, um, they have a, a company set up, they pay taxes, et cetera, but um, they are not uh, eligible to, to apply for the loans, uh, maybe because they don't bank with a large institution, um, so that the requirements along the lines of, of the PPP program are also presenting significant challenges, even for uh, those in the Latinx communities who are employers, entrepreneurs, and small business owners. You know, all of these, thing, all of these things that you've brought up have been challenges for everyone, and therefore it's almost like even more exclusionary. Yeah, it does have an, a, a crowding out um, effect when you have such a large impact on the larger, larger, broader population. Mm -hmm. Those folks who uh, have traditionally been able to access um, services in the past or have been able to file for unemployment, um, of course, they will be able to um, uh, uh, try to apply to get the, the relief, and rightly so. Um, everybody needs it. Um, the, the challenge is to um, begin to think about uh, those, the, you know, populations that are excluded from the normal system under normal circumstances and think about how there might be policy solutions that can be um, more inclusive of those populations. And, and it doesn't um, uh, merely just uh, stop at folks who are undocumented. Um, there are other populations, elderly populations that Adriana studies, um, who are just not in, in the, uh, don't have the right uh, tools, they don't have the right knowledge, information, capacity even to access uh, the relief. So, that, so it becomes a, um, uh, when so many people are impacted, it becomes a, a, what they call a crowding out effect, right? So people just come to the program uh, immediately and, and eventually um, people get left out uh, because so many people are coming to, to, to seek that relief. Even though there's been difficulty getting testing and, and such to the, the Latinx communities, are we seeing higher rates of infection and mortality among this population? Well, uh, I can speak that the preliminary numbers point towards, yes, higher um, levels of contagion, mortality. 
particularly among African-American and, and Latinx communities. Um, it, you know, from New York City, we know the data has been uh, uh, particularly devastating for these communities. Um, but I mean, also anecdotally, there are uh, a number of ways in which, uh, you know, we might want to um, uh, consider in the long term what the numbers uh, reveal. Um, so, for example, in, in this community that I'm that I'm uh, working with, it's it's uh, the number of people who are sick or have a family member who is sick and does not want to go to a hospital, does not want to see a doctor, is writing it out unless it gets you know unless their symptoms are really really bad, or even folks who. Um, are told that they should come to seek care when their symptoms are very extreme. Um, that's a population that, that's unobserved until, until they, their cases become very extreme or there's uh, mortality in, in these populations. Um, <clears throat> and, and more likely than not, uh, the, the mortality is going to impact those regions or those populations that are going to have uh, higher uh, chronic conditions, higher levels of chronic conditions, uh, et cetera, that are risk factors, right? So, right. Uh, Adrena, I don't know if you want to add to that. I do want to share some data uh, from the CDC that was released this week on racial ethnic data that's showing provisional death counts. Now, keep in mind, as Dr. Vargas said, I think, you know, we, it, it, we have yet to know the numbers and what they truly are, but what I like from these numbers is that the CDC is um, weighting population distributions. So uh, this, uh, the distributions ensure that population estimates and percentage of COVID-19 deaths represent comparable geographic areas. So that we're taking into account rurality versus you know, urban areas. And so this data, I think, will be a little more complete and continues to be um, you know, further uh, it, it will be more comprehensive, but to give you an example in terms of state by state, in Arizona, my home state, uh, while the Latino Latinx population is 31.6%, uh, those that have been impacted by COVID-19 debt, uh, COVID-19, uh, that number is about 31.9% when weighted for ge geographic outbreak areas. And Arizona is very spread out. It includes a very dynamic border community. Um, so, you know, that shows that it that death rate is up, you know, uh, meeting sort of um, the, the rest of the population, Latinx population in Arizona. Here in, in uh, Pennsylvania, while the uh, Latinx population is about 8%, uh, those that have been impacted by COVID-19 are estimated to be about 11.1% when weighted for geographic outbreak areas. In states like New York, where the population is about 12%, uh, you know, 11.7%, those uh, Latinos impacted are about 18.7%, so exceeding the current population. And, I, and again, I think we're going to see these numbers continue to change as more um, become tested, and um, as uh, I think um, the numbers, you know, reveal that 
um, especially those that have other pre-existing conditions, um, show that they are even more at risk because of things like diabetes, heart disease, you know, asthma, and things like, and those um, other, you know, healthcare uh, comorbidities. And how about your um, your seniors who are aging in place? How? What are some of the? I can imagine there's been a lot of difficulty in. Um, reaching them, considering everyone's supposed to be social distancing and things like that. How are you getting around those challenges? Yes, that's right. So, so my research uh, here is in North Philadelphia. Um, I've learned that older um, Latinos reside predominantly in North Philadelphia, whereas uh, the South Philadelphia community tends to be younger, the younger Latinx community. Um, and what I study is, it's interesting because I look at environmental factors, things like crime, neighborhood noise, neighborhood density, um, socioeconomic status as measured by home value. Um, the North Philadelphia community um, experiences much higher rates of crime compared to other communities, uh, higher rates of poverty, noise level, um, and density. So there, um, you know, there are these challenges, and in addition, while you see on television and sort of the experts recommending to go outside for a walk, you can certainly go outside, you can bike if you need to use the trail. Um, that's not a reality um, in the community. It's, it's a very dense community. Um, so old, you know, my older participants and even those that I see in clinic have less opportunities for walking, sidewalking, access to green spaces, for example. And um, what we're finding is that, I think, Doctora Vargas, you mentioned, they do not have access as readily available compared to other older adults when it comes to technology. Um, in fact, I'm learning now that uh, it's a struggle to reach them via telemedicine or other um, you know, technologies like smartphones. They have phones, but maybe not smartphones. And for the most part, they at the very least are experiencing mild cognitive impairment. And at the most severe cases have Alzheimer's because they're at risk for Alzheimer's and other um, dementias. So they need a lot of support, assistance, navigating any kind of technology. Um, and so that, you know, that becomes even more pronounced um, as an issue during a time when they're supposed to be socially distanced or physically distanced. Um, and so that, that is a big concern. Um, uh, there's a growing number that need assistance in the home from, you know, um, families to aid assistance through, through Medicare, Medicaid. Um, but, you know, that, that in itself also puts them at risk for either um, isolation, which is a, you know, could be a huge social and health problem in older adults. And at the same time, you know, they're exposed to uh, people that are um, in the front lines, seeing others, uh, you know, in, in occupations where they're, they themselves are at high risk. So, again, I also, you know, tend to look at how can I um, leverage the strengths that they have, and I still do think that Things like the faith-based community, which is um, very solid and very strong in North Philadelphia. In fact, 
the um, archdiocese issued um, in the last couple of weeks some additional assistance for, for families with seniors for housing or food and other resources. So I have been so heartened to see that and to see the community, uh, whether from the private sector, the faith-based community, um, and local leaders pulling together to do the best they can uh, when it comes to protecting seniors. If I may add to that point, uh, that it's a really important point that uh, Dr. Adriana makes. Um, since many Latinx communities are also multi-generational um, within their households, um, they also are multi-generational across borders. And um, it, one important aspect of, of this is that on the, on the mental health side, people are worried about uh, particularly older generations in their home country. Immigrants are worried about parents, they're worried about uncles, they're worried about, um, and, and so therefore there's, there's a, um, a sense of wanting to do more but not being able to do so, number one. And number two, just the, the economic impact has uh, big reverberations for that multi-generation family across borders because immigrants um, have less income here and they're, uh, able to, they're not able to send as much uh, money in remittances. So, and remittances, uh, at least in Mexico, it's the, um, I believe it's the third source of, of uh, income to uh, GDP of the country, you know, it's the oil, tourism, and remittances from the United States. So it's a really big economic impact that reverberates across borders. Um, and when economic situations uh, get worse in the home countries, you add that to a global pandemic um, and fewer, perhaps fewer, fewer resources and less capacity to deal with a really widespread contagion of, of COVID-19. It's a, um, almost like a multiplier effect that, that uh, a, affects families across generations and across borders. So what, what do the two of you think are some of the things that we need to see moving forward as we come out of this pandemic, eventually, hopefully? <laughs> well, number one, I think something that you're hearing from all of the issues that we're describing is sort of the elephant in the room, which is we need um, immigration reform. Uh, we need to be able to um, count and include immigrants um, in all of in all aspects. And I think that until we do have comprehensive immigration reform, these issues uh, will not be solved. These are complex issues. And when you have a population that experiences fear every day, to go to work, to go to the store, to um, access healthcare or any other resource, um, you know, they, um, they, that will um, really determine their health and I think the health of our community because regardless of how you feel about immigrants in this country, you know, we will see them in the emergency room um, in the school system. As Dr. Vargas mentioned, I think uh, many, uh, at least colleagues that I know still are surprised to learn that there are these mixed status families 
that have children that are um, U.S. born, American citizens, and yet, you know, their their families still live in fear. Um, we have a, a you know, um, 800,000 dreamers uh, waiting to uh, learn their fate. Um, many, and I have colleagues that are nurses um, that uh, that are DACA recipients, um, and I think it has to start there with. Uh, uh, immigration policy, um, you know, not being politicized, but truly um, being uh, comprehensive and moving forward. Yeah, just to add to that point uh, by Dr. Perez, well, there's um, actually there's a really great op-ed uh, written by a journalist who covers the U.S.-Mexico border. His name is Alfredo Corchado. He writes this op-ed in the New York Times, which I believe came out yesterday. Um, where the title is that if they're essential, they can't be illegal. Um, so uh, the, as, as Doctora Perez mentioned, um, a lot of the folks who are keeping uh, the lettuce and all of the agricultural products on shelves in supermarkets, uh, it's a lot, it's a labor force of over a million people, uh, it's the estimate, um, are folks who are undocumented. And uh, those are frontline workers who are also falling sick, um, and 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 uh, many are afraid to to uh, contract the virus, and and therefore have to be will be out of out of work, um, et cetera. So it has big repercussions for uh, food security, generally speaking. Um, but going back to what you were talking about uh, in terms of, of of solutions, I believe that there are. Um, Solutions that are applicable to the broader population, as we as we've mentioned, um, access to PPP loans, um, access to these immediate um, uh, uh, inclusion of, of financial benefits to families, regardless of their of their documentation status. And there's precedent for that in the state of California. They had a relief package for all of their citizens. I believe it was a, um, a transfer of about $500 per citizen, uh, regardless of their, their immigration status. So that's uh, the things that apply to everybody also apply to Latinos and Latinx communities. Um, what's important to keep in mind is that um, Latinx communities are even more vulnerable uh, in terms of in their preparedness to deal with something so large of a hit as a pandemic would be. Um, and they also uh, uh, don't have that safety net that, that uh, or have less of uh, access, fewer, less access to, to a safety net. Um, for example, uh, a solution that's important um, is that uh, a solution that could be considered is um, expanding, for example, a solution that applies to everybody would be expanding moratoriums, not just on mortgages, but also on rent, right? That applies to everybody. Um, but you can make that more specific as well to include the Latinx community saying there's a moratorium uh, for X amount of time regardless of your documentation status, right? So the add-ons need to be very specific to include the populations that are 
that are excluded. Um, more specifically, for example, in, in Montgomery County or in, or in Pennsylvania, um, PPB funds are accessible through specific uh, bank branches and the SBA, uh, the Small Business, uh, I believe it's Administration Office, um, has offices, regional offices everywhere in the country. However, not a lot of those resources are available in Spanish or maybe many of those locations don't have people who can provide expertise and guidance to people applying for PPP loans in Spanish um, and, and helping them uh, uh, gather the, the necessary documentation, et cetera. So again, there's an example of how we can make uh, solutions more expansive to include the people who are, are excluded normally. Um, since I focus on mental health, a really important um, service uh, has become telehealth. And I think that telehealth um, is, is actually very uh, efficient uh, for, for reaching Latinx communities um, in the sense that um, many people are afraid because of their legal status or for other reasons to, to go to a health center. But if they're available, if, if they can access services through telehealth, there might be, there might be a larger um, uh, inclusion and a larger demand among Latinx communities, particularly for services in, in mental health or even in, uh, uh, we've seen it in primary care, but mental health is really important. Um, and this one applies to the Latinx community uh, in terms of offering services in Spanish um, and, and also offering information in Spanish uh, through trusted community organizations, trusted community leaders. So the rollout of the public health efforts, policies, programs need to partner with communities in the Latinx uh, uh, regions and among the Latinx population. Um, so I think that, you know, investments, generally speaking, in, in staff and, and personnel, just, just like we want to invest in, in contact tracing, um, general investments for health organizations to also have people who can do this more specific work of community outreach to populations that are normally excluded, Latinx, older populations, for example, um, becomes a really, really important tool for uh, local healthcare centers to leverage in, in making care accessible to, to the people who need it the most. Um, finally, I think that there, um, and then here again, there's, there's an incentive. Uh, a larger solution is uh, for, for uh, employers to hire, obviously bring back employees and, and hire employees, um, but that they do so under safe conditions, right? Um, and also one can think about how um, those incentives might be expanded to um, businesses that, that provide uh, jobs for folks who may not have the proper documentation or folks who are owners uh, uh, businesses, foreign-born um, employers uh, to be 
included in that larger effort of both safety and um, and economic revival. As Adriana, as as Doctora Perez said, um, there are steps that can be taken towards a larger immigration reform. Um, so specifically, um, there are states and there are there are cities where, um, for example, you can have a driver's license regardless of your documentation status. Well, what, what does that do? Well, if you have a driver's license, you can open a bank account more easily. You can have, and through that bank account, you can have access to um, the services that that banking institution uh, uh, provides. And so the access, it's a point of entry to a larger system of, of access to both services, um, care, schooling, et cetera. So there are steps, as, as Dr. Perez mentioned, um, there are steps to include dreamers, there are steps to include farm workers, um, and all of those things should be on the table, um, particularly as we have seen how much our country relies on the labor, the taxes, um, the contributions, the innovation, that, that immigrants and, and, and specifically Latinx immigrants uh, bring to our bring to our, our, our country, our communities, our, our neighborhoods, etc. Oh, and an important thing, one last thing I think that is really um, important is to think about um, along the lines of accept of, for example, providing licenses. Um, one can talk about, uh, one can speak to accepting, uh, for example, the Consulate of Mexico provides a consular ID to all Mexican citizens if they if they want one. Maybe accepting the consular ID as an official document of, of identification uh, is a step towards, once again, this, this access towards large, larger services. And a really, really important part of this is to stop deportation proceedings, um, to, you know, put a hiatus to, um, it is this this persecution in the midst of, of of something so impactful that that we haven't seen in our lifetimes, such as a, a pandemic. Um, you know, it, it just seems like the right thing to do. That regardless of how you begin to uh, work through immigration proceedings. Um, that deportations need to uh, uh, at least be put on hold uh, because we rely on, on a lot of these folks for our, our food supplies, for our, um, our labor, et cetera. So um, I think that that's a, that would be an important uh, step and an important uh, olive branch really for Latinx communities and an important, an important signal for a lot of Latinx communities to begin to um, uh, to build that relationship of, of trust with these communities. Dr. DiDonato, I do want to at least, you know, end with resources where listeners can go to learn more. And there are some really great resources out there that are interprofessional, interdisciplinary. One that I look for, obviously, we know are federal resources, but Salud America has put out some really great infographics to um, on various issues related to immigrant health, Latinx health, 
And one of the uh, recent articles was is about 19 ways to ensure health equity in regards to immigrants, uh, Latinos in the country. Uh, one of the, one I want to pick is, and because it's timely, and it has to do with the census. As you know, the census officially started. Uh, Latinx communities are, have historically been undercounted in the census. Um, currently, um, there are efforts to reach uh, the Latinx community in very unique ways. Here in Pennsylvania, Lehigh Valley, uh, there's a campaign targeting Latinx households uh, that traditionally are hard to count. So yes, having information that is in Spanish, but also finding creative ways to reach the community through trusted sources like the faith-based community, et cetera. So we, that's very important. And I think that this will contribute greatly to addressing um, health equity for immigrant populations. We need campaigns like these, like Agase uh, Contar is the campaign. So I encourage your listeners to um, look at uh, organizations like saludamerica.org for more information. That's excellent. Thank you both. Um, thank you both for coming on and speaking with us today. And I really, I applaud the work that you're doing. It's so incredibly important and so necessary. And, and thank you very much for coming on. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing Podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can, please do us a solid and rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.